Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community. It's good to have you here for another great community conversation on the Northern New York Community Podcast. I'm your host, Max Del Signor. We are fortunate to have Danny Baker with us on this episode. It would be safe to say that much like her current livelihood, her experience in philanthropy has been organic. Danny will share details on her upbringing and professional career, the creation of an agritourism destination on Wellesley Island, and the many layers of giving back. But before we visit with Danny, let's take a minute to thank our sponsors, WPBS-DT and the Northern New York Community Foundation. These interviews are made possible because of these two local organizations. Their support has created a platform to feature and share profound stories about why giving back in the North Country really matters. Go online to learn more about each organization. Head to www.wpbstv.org to catch up on the latest programming at WPBS. And then go to www.nnycf.org to see what the Community Foundation has to offer. Okay, let's begin our conversation with Danny Baker. Danny, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. So now you are not a North Country native. Can, can you tell us just a little bit about where you grew up and a little bit about your family? Uh, I grew up in northern Westchester County near New York City, but I am kind of a part-time North Country native <laughs> because we spent our summers in the Adirondacks and the foothills of the Adirondacks where both my parents worked at a resort hotel. So I grew up there summers and I fell in love with the North Country through that experience and when I was 27 and finally took a stab at independence. I moved to, to Clinton County and uh, through work ended up in Jefferson County in 93 and here I am. What did you love the most about the Adirondacks growing up as a kid in the time oh, you spent well, here? You know, just spending time outdoors. We had a big white pine forest right near the, the it was like a little cottage where we stayed. There was an ice barn. They cut ice from the lake, and don't tell anybody, but they, they cut ice from the lake, stored it under sawdust in a, sh in a barn under a lot of shade, like it was on the edge of a ridge, and then they'd, they'd put it in the water for the guests. Really? This is before the, the health police, I think. <laughs> they, yeah, they'd chop it up, and it would be in these big glasses of water, and in iced tea also for the guests. Mm. So we would play in there and we'd go berry picking. Then there was a golf course and across the road up on a little ridge, we'd, we'd walk on the path and collect golf balls. And we, you know, did you ever unstring a golf ball? No, no I've never. Well, you t if, if the top is cut, you can peel it off. And then there's like a rubber band that circles it countless times. And then right in the middle is a colored rubber ball with liquid inside. Once you get it going, because there's like a lot of cement or glue that holds it, but once you get it going, you can kind of do like this and the rubber ball <laughs> kind of unwinds by itself. Yeah, yeah, so we do that and I don't know. It was, I just, we, I knew all the good berry patches and. So wh where'd that love of the outdoors come from? Well, cause that's where we were. You know, you didn't want to stay inside <laughs> unless it was a rainy day. So, and I had time, and even in Northern Westchester, <clears throat> the house that uh, my parents bought when I was about five, had just been built on, on what had been a cornfield. And then down the hill, there were woods and there was a pond in the woods and all this stuff. And I just wandered around. You know, I was kind of a loner as a child, so I spent a lot of time just wandering around and observing nature and immersing myself in it. Adventurous. Well, curious. Curious, yeah. One day I found some 
some corn in, the, in an indentation of a rock, and I brought it home. I thought the Indians had left it. I thought that was where they ground their corn, and here was the last you know, you had remnant a piece of, of history it. there. Well, of course it wasn't, but yeah. Still that curiosity as a child and being outside. Interesting to the connection to the Adirondacks, too. Did you know after completing college and your courses of study that I need to get back there. This is, this is where I love to be and I love just, I remember, I had such good memories of being up there. I, we moved to White Plains, which was a city for high school. And then I chose, because I was naive about my own needs, to go to college in a city. And then I went to graduate school in a city. And none of that was really good for my mental health. So when I got to the point where I started to, I wanted to, to be happier person, I thought of the mountains where I was always happy. And so I happened to know one person who'd moved up to the area, so I didn't go up without knowing anyone at all. And so that's what I decided to do. And it was a good choice. And I've been in the country ever since. <laughs> I haven't left. Yeah, I'm just a country girl at heart. What do you remember about your parents or family or even friends and the way that they would either give back or help others in any of the communities that you lived in? Well, I remember one incident with my mother. We were in Peekskill shopping for food or something and we were in a parking lot and there was an old woman digging through um, a garbage, you know, looking for food. And my mother said, I'll be right back. She went out of the car and she gave the woman some money. So that was, you know, kind of a, a very dramatic memory that I have of helping. My mother was pretty involved with uh, volunteering in the community. We didn't have any money to give away, but she gave a lot of her time. She was a Girl Scout leader for, you know, right up through my high school years. And she um, was involved with the PTA and she even got involved with politics a little bit. I think it was a school board election and she had like a reception at her home for a candidate. and. Um, yeah, she was pretty involved with the community. So that was a role model, even though I haven't done as much along those lines as she did. And then um, Lou Sarnoff. Now, this was, this was a, a friend of, my mother had befriended his wife-to-be back when they were both single and in their 20s, anyway. And my mother kept touch with Stephanie and then Lou over the years, and he was a self-made a very, very wealthy man um, who ended up, you know, one of the owners of Time Warner. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know how many million shares of stock he had, but, um, and he was a benefactor for our family. And he would give us, he gave us uh, shares of stock to help us pay for our college, all three of my, me and my two siblings. And their family would give us their appliances when they had replaced them, which were perfectly new to us, but you know, so we had a refrigerator, and then we, when we bought that house, they gave us money to put wall-to-wall -wall wall carpet in it. So I just had that role model of someone who was just, you know, just a kind, giving person, and you know, just because of the friendship. I mean, you know, I don't know. So that was a real role model for me. I will say. Did any of that experience impact your decision to pursue, you know, studies in psychology and the career that you chose? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Is there a different That's reason a to one. choose? To My choose mother that encouraged me. You know, I was going to be. I was a, a declared math major when I went to college, 
and I was pretty good in math. And um, I, I was placed a year, and I didn't have a good experience in linear algebra, which the second semester of my freshman year, and that's when I decided to do something else. I was taking sociology at the time, which I fell in love with the grand theories. And then my mother encouraged me to do something, like I told you, I was kind of a loner. She encouraged me to do something where I'd be working with people. So it was between social work and psychology, and a professor of mine advised me to, he was, he was, um, he was a, an expert on stratification social stratification, and he advised me to go for the higher level degree and also to go to an Ivy League school if I could because of that whole social status thing that he, I don't know. So I just followed his advice and that's what happened. The first question is the why. So what, what led you to come back to nor the North Country and to see the farm in particular? Well, I, I came back to the North Country in 1978. That's when I moved to Clinton County. Mm -hmm. And I work for, I'll answer your first question now. I work, <laughs> for, I work for an association for retarded children. And I was a program manager there, uh, running a day treatment program for adults, developmentally disabled adults. That really taught me how, how dedicated um, people who work for not-for-profits are. I mean, you don't make a lot of money and you work above and beyond the call to serve your clients. And I think that's universally true of not-for-profits. And I don't think the people who work there, I mean, they deserve all the credit for how they give of themselves. And so, you know, I was part of that for a period of time. So uh, I came out here in 93 and I worked for the prison system. And then I was thinking about retiring, and I'm, I'm a really active, energetic person, and I was, I was really terrified of having a lot of idle time with no structure. <laughs> so I thought, well, if I have some land, I can, you know, maybe get a couple of horses, I can do a little landscaping. So when I, we came to see the property on the island, the first thing, well, first I looked at the topo map, and I saw 80 feet of elevation on one of the ridges, and I thought, oh, this is like, I love, I wanted something with some difference. I didn't want flat. And uh, when we got to the property, right on the road was a rocky ridge, and I ran right up it, and it was like being on the top of a foothill of the Adirondacks. And I just fell in love with the land right away. And of course, the house was a money pit. It was an old farmhouse. <laughs> I was depressed for two years over that, but, um, yeah. How difficult was it to start the farm? Well, I had gardened as a child. Um, my father had a heart attack when we were preschoolers. And so in those days, in the 50s, they told men, oh, take it easy for the rest of your life. So he didn't do any physical labor. My mother was a five foot tall, petite woman. And so I was the oldest and the strongest. So I got to new house on a cornfield. So I got to pitchfork over all the flower beds and the, the garden and dig all the holes for the landscaping trees. And so I grew up doing that and I really enjoyed it. And whenever in the rest of my, my adulthood before the farm, whenever I had a plot of land I could do something with, I, I had a small garden or a big garden depending. Anyway, so for me to have a vegetable garden was really nothing. But was it the added elements that you wanted to build out that took a little more time and well then of course we did a garden in the first year and we sold some stuff and it was like oh this is easy so then we ex we doubled the size of it or quadrupled it. i don't even remember right away and <laughs> planted more stuff and then my partner wanted animals and so we got you know the chickens and the cows and the pigs and the goats and the ducks and we had turkeys at one time 
And then I had the seven-year itch, and I wanted to do something new, and I took a class about permaculture, and I thought, that's it, I'm going to have an edible forest. And so that's my baby currently. So 102 acres, approximately, yeah. right, for the mm -hmm. farm? Right. And your partner, David Belding, yep. right? Mm -hmm. This has been your venture for? 12 years. 12, 12 years. Yep. What's, the, what's the future hold? I got to tell you, I, this is very relevant to our discussion. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned working for the ARC um, back in the 80s, and uh, the program was changing under my feet where we were expanding, and the state that had all of the, the power to choose clients wanted to have um, medically impaired people who needed pretty much total care. And this was not what I wanted to do. So I wanted to have people who could walk and talk and go potty by themselves and maybe had behavior problems. I was a psychologist after all, who you could shape. You know, you could maybe help them uh, become more adjusted to society and actually advance themselves. So it wasn't the population I wanted to work with, so I quit. And I had a little, it took some time before I was able to, you know, f decide what I wanted to do next and get another job. And I had this mantra at that time. Well, first of all, I was 35 when I quit the job. And at that time I said, you know, salary and benefits is no reason to stay. If that's all it is, there's no reason to stay at the job. So I had this mantra that I said, I want to become independently wealthy by my own efforts in my own lifetime so I can spend all my time doing good works for nothing. That was my mantra. Because for me, the farm is spending all my time doing good works for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and because I saved a lot of money, um, basically from my employment, um, I can also do good works monetarily. And so I, I'm, I'm really proud of myself for basically fulfilling that, that mantra goal that I set. It's really, it's and it was in amazing. the midst of a hypomanic episode. <laughs> <laughs> but, nonetheless, but nonetheless, here we are. That's right. How does the farm, if you could, how does the farm give back to the community? One of our, part of our mission statement is education. And we do a lot of education. Uh, we do tours and we have uh, school groups come and college groups and I do workshops. Um, so we're educating the community about how to raise, you know, healthy um, food in a way that's kind to the environment. So we're giving back in that way. And then we're producing a quantity of very healthy food to feed people. Um, also, you know, we're on an island and we have, we have a windmill, you know, we produce our own power. And actually right now we're in the process of, it, we're tied to the grid at the moment, but we're going to be, uh, doing some um, additions so that we can actually switch it to off the grid so and get power, utilize the power we're producing off the grid. So if there was some um, emergency where, uh, let's say, the power grid went down for some reason, whether it was a natural disaster or a man-caused disaster, um, we could actually pump water for our neighbors. We could, you know, keep our food fresh and frozen in our refrigerators, our freezers, so we could share that. So, you know, I feel like, you know, we're, I'm planning, we're planning to, to be a help to our local community even more if we had some kind of crisis where that kind of help was needed. Well, and at one time in a previous discussion that we had, you said that there is a hope long-term that maybe either another couple or family might be able to mm -hmm. take on what you right. and David have put right. together. Yes, but we have to become profitable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
before, <laughs> before Nobody, anything. Well, if it's going to continue, it has to be profitable because you know, if, if even if someone's well-meaning, who wants to take it over, if there's not a way to make a living at it, you know, it's not realistic that it will continue. I mean, we can do it. Dave works off the farm, and I have a pension. That's how we can afford to be farmers at the moment. To transition, you've also dealt with some personal tragedy mm -hmm. in your life. Your, your son, Mark, committed suicide when he was 22. 21. 21, excuse me. And um, you give back to community projects, programs, in many ways as a way to recognize your son. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, how, how did losing a son impact your giving? Well, I had one child, and he's dead. So I have no heirs. There's nobody to leave anything to. Um, I live very frugally. I don't, there's nothing I want. Um, and I saved quite a bit of money because I, I, I did have a good salary uh, working for the prison and I thought that I would not uh, be eligible for any kind of financial support when my son was ready for college. So I, I invested money so that I'd be able to pay for him to go to a private school. Well, for four years. Well, when he died, and he'd never, he had, he had flunked out of two or three schools along the way and, you know, he, so I didn't have a reason to use that money anymore. So that was kind of the nest egg that I decided I was going to give away. And um, I wanted to commemorate his life in some way. For me, having his, his name on things that, um, on mostly structures that um, had some meaning to him or in our relationship. Um, you know, it just has a lot of meaning for me. So that's what I started doing. And one of the first things I did, I think, was um, fund a timer for the school at Thousand Islands because he was a, he, he was a, he, when he was young, he, he was a, a racer. He raced, mm -hmm. and, you know, he swam races. So that was meaningful. And um, he always cared about the environment. So I've, I've helped now more than one <laughs> mm -hmm. environmental agency, um, you know, preserve land or educate people about conservation. Can you share a little bit about the, the reading room at DePauville Library sure, too? Sure, yeah. Well, so when my, uh, we moved uh, to a different town, I was a single parent, and we moved to a different town when my son was entering second grade. And I go to the first, um, the first teacher conference, and they told me he was in the lowest reading group. And I knew he was a bright kid. I said, you know, why is that? Well, he can't read, and the other kids can't. I said, well, is he in remedial reading? No. Well, put him in remedial reading. So the problem was that um, the curriculum was different in the old school system, and they hadn't prepared kids for the level of reading that was expected with the curriculum in the school he entered for second grade. So um, when DePolville wanted to uh, renovate a room to provide remedial reading to kids, it was, it was a no-brainer for me, <laughs> you know, to, to reach out to support that effort because I know how important it was for my son. Oh, I didn't mention it. So by the end of the semester, he was in the highest reading group because he just needed that extra help. And I think a lot of kids are in the same boat. And so, and they need a facility for this to take place. So I was happy to fund this and, you know, I'm, it just was really meaningful. <laughs> mm -hmm. So anyway, that's, that's the story about the Povo Library. Can you share a little bit too about 
um, some of the other projects you mentioned, whether it be to honor your son or just good community projects mm -hmm. that you see mm -hmm. as a resident, what compels you to give to support some of those programs, programs well, or look, projects? I, I, well, I went to write a will many years ago and, uh, to a lawyer, and um, you know, I said, I have this kayak I want to give to a girlfriend. And, and he said, Danny, if you have something you want to give somebody, don't wait till you die. Give it to them now. And I thought, I just totally overgeneralized that. So, I mean, I'm self-insured for a nursing home. So I have a certain number that I like to keep in savings just in case I need to fund that. And beyond that, what am I going to do with it? So I just give it away. And that's, I mean, why not? Rather than leave it in my will, you know, that's silly. If I can, I'd rather decide where it goes than somebody right. else. So um, that's it. And, you know, I've, I've been just very fortunate in, you know, I've, I've, I manage my own finances and I've been very fortunate, um, you know, to, I won't call it lucky, but to have been, you know, uh, I, I've been successful in my choices. And so I have extra and I'll read an article in the paper like, okay, so the um, SUNY ESF was looking for funding for a dormitory on Governor Island um, so that they could house students on the island who were working there. And of course, that was um, you know, a, an environmental activity. I'm very interested in that. So um, I called up the development guy and you know, he showed me around. I thought, uh, yeah, I'd like to do that. So, you know. And then, um, you know, the IRLC, the Indian River Lakes Conservancy, um, uh, needed money to purchase a 42-acre island in one of the Indian River Lakes that was going to be open to the public but preserved forever. That was sort of a no-brainer. So I gave them a house. I had, I had dabbled in some rental real estate. So I gave them, actually it was my, uh, I think it was a rental property that I owned. I mean, I really didn't want to deal with selling it, so I gave it to them. They sold it, they got the money, they bought the island, so that worked out. How does it feel to help these organizations? Again, you have this affinity for nonprofits, as you mentioned right. before, so right. to be able to help them move ahead, yeah. how, how does it make you feel to be able to do this? Well, didn't, couldn't you tell by my enthusiasm when I just described <laughs> that? So I still want to make sure I ask the question. <laughs> I don't know, I just feel good if I believe in the project and it's gonna be lasting. I, I, I like to do things that are going to be lasting because I have no heirs, you know, so I like to do things that, you know, are going to persist hopefully long into the future. You've said before giving to things that appreciate. Yes, right? appreciate, right, rather than depreciate. Mm -hmm. I mean, and oh, so, you know, like the hospital, you know, A Bay Hospital, they, um, you know, they have this wonderful program uh, for active servicemen and, and women and, and now veterans. Uh, to help them with post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, I'm pretty sure that my son had that um, from an incident that happened when he was in high school where two of his, his classmates died. And um, he, I don't think he ever dealt with it. In fact, he's not the only one who killed himself. Another young man who was part of that friendship group killed himself. So I know there's something that went on there that was never resolved. and. It just, if I, and the art therapy for me is such a wonderful medium because these are things, my son certainly couldn't talk about it. These are things that 
people can't always talk about, but if they can express it through some other medium, then at least they can get it out in the open and examine it. So I was lucky to be able to support um, you know, that capital project there, particularly the art therapy room that they're going to be uh, building. So that's another example, but there's so many, I think there's three or four churches that, you know, one has a roof and one has an air conditioning system and one has, I don't know what, um, that I've helped. And um, again, they're all capital projects. The Opera House, when they had their big capital campaign, that was the biggie. For me then, I mean, after this meeting, I'm going over to the SPCA, <laughs> see how I can help them out. What does the word philanthropy mean to you? Well, first of all, I always have trouble pronouncing it. <laughs> Just, it, it means giving money to worthy causes. Do you feel that your giving has been organic? I know we made the tie at the very beginning with the intro, but it seems very fluid. When there's certain things that you see, you feel like there, that's an area where you can support. Will it always be that way too? Do you feel like that's part of your, your philanthropy and your, your giving back? When you see something good, here's a chance to help somebody else. Well, I like to be the one to take the initiative. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't feel comfortable when people ask me, as a rule. I'd rather discover the need and, and take the initiative and go to them and, you know, say, you know, find out more about it. And then, and then I mean, it also has to do with, um, you know, what kind of funds I have available at the time, you know, like when I, when my checking account starts building up in excess, then I start looking for a way to get rid of it. How important is... <laughs> Sorry, just the way no, it is. It's true. No, it's good. It's true. Well, when I was, I got to tell you, when I was young, my parents taught me to save, but they never taught me to save with a goal. It was like saving for saving's sake. And I, I saved half my salary when I was employed, when I had a good salary. I mean, you know, I, I just saved it with no particular objective in mind other than saving for my son's college, but that was just part of my savings. And um, now I kind of have a goal for my savings, <laughs> which is to find worthy causes and, and help them. Do you think that's an important lesson that the younger generation needs to take note of? If you have an opportunity to help others, just by saving a little bit, the impact behind what you're able to give to somebody else can be so meaningful? If you say so. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 how so how important, important is some of these great lessons? Like you said, saving was a key, big yeah. key for you and being able to have the resources to do what you're doing now is, is important to you and to these I want to say something else about that. May yeah, I interrupt? Sure. So when I was about to retire, I had to see a therapist because I was freaking out, not only about having so much leisure time, but what am I going to do when I can't save money anymore, honestly? And so she said, she's very wise, she said, well, Danny, there are other ways to conserve. You know, that helped me, except that, you know, yes, I can find other ways. So I conserve in my farming life, and I conserve by helping conservation organizations, and I'm sure there are other ways I conserve <laughs> without actually, but I still save money because I, I don't live on what I... I have, and I, and boy, when I when I hit seventy, and I start collecting Social Security, I have nothing. I have no need for that. And just wait, just wait, community. No. And then when I, you know, when I'm seventy and a half, and I have to start taking my my RMDs, I have no need for that. 
So, you know, I'm just going to have to, you know, look further for ways to <laughs> dispose of it. Well, and even with the financial contributions and being able to give back that way, and the farm especially, you do spend a little time volunteering but serving on boards and committees too. I mean, you're involved yeah. with AUW. Right. No, uh, I don't River do Lakes committee work there, but no, I, I, I was on the board of the IRLC for about six years mm -hmm. and I still support them on a voluntary basis. And uh, yes, uh, I'm on a committee for the Opera House and I'm on a committee. I don't want to be on any more boards, but I'm on a committee <laughs> for the Opera House and for the Art Museum in Clayton. And actually, I just joined the development committee for the Nature Center, so I'm excited about that. Very nice. So what would your message be to the next generation coming up? What message would you impart about why it's so important to give back to your community and to where, the place where you live? Well, you know, I'm think when I was young, I didn't, I didn't give. I gave back from a for work, you know, working for not for profit in that regard. But I didn't. I wasn't that involved with the community, nor did I, you know, have funds to, you know, be a philanthropist mm -hmm. um, with. Um, but since I started doing it, both kinds of things. I mean, it's and the farm as well. I mean, the people you meet, the relationships you form when you're doing those kinds of things are priceless. And, you know, I think just for that, <laughs> you know, to get, you know, to get out in the community and volunteer in some fashion, and then, you know, being to help when you're in a position financially to help with any kind of worthy, even helping to raise money. I mean, that's very important. Um, and that's more volunteering than actually donating, but, um, I mean, your time rather than your financial assets. But um, I think, you know, that is so essential for the health of the community. You mentioned before about building a legacy. Mm -hmm. The farm is part of that equation. Mm -hmm. What do you hope the legacy of Danny Baker is? Well, I certainly hope my edible forest garden will live on um, as, a, as a, a model for sustainable agriculture, sustainable perennial agriculture. Um, that I, I've actually been thinking of that as being my legacy because it's something I created directly and it's, it's alive and it's, it's growing. I mean, it, it's gonna grow whether I'm there or not. And, um, but it still needs caretaking. So I hope that I can arrange for some way that it will be cared for and, and, and it will be, um, you know, th the lessons from it will continue to be disseminated to the general public. Um, and then as far as the rest goes, you know, if my son's name, if my son's name is here and there and the elsewhere, you know, and then now I've moved on. My mother's, there's going to be a trail named after my mother. And then now it's Cross Island Farms. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm, I'm used, I like the business to be recognized, you know, into the future. Maybe that will help it survive into the future <laughs> as well. So. Well, it's really remarkable the scope of what you've done, particularly here in the North Country. And, you know, the community is certainly so much greater because of your generosity and the time you've put into it. And I encourage folks to go to Cross Island Farms on Wellesley Island to see you because it is pretty remarkable, the site. And to see the edible garden, it's, it's really pretty, pretty, pretty fantastic. You should be proud, proud of that great work. work. Thank you. And thanks for coming here on the podcast to share your story. We appreciate your time. Thank you.
We were glad to have you join us for another edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. Remember, each interview can be downloaded for free anytime on your mobile device or listened to online. Type in Northern New York Community Podcast when you search for us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or other podcast platforms. Also check out our website featuring interview highlights, transcripts, photo galleries, and much more. Just go to www.nnycpodcast.com. Our thanks again to Danny Baker, and thanks to all of you for listening to the Northern New York Community Podcast. Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community.